Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. Good morning. Uh, in case you happen to come in late, I'm going to give you a, another disclaimer real quick. We try and give for small children when we're dealing with certain topics. Uh, today we're going to be looking at what the Bible has to say about the topic of sex. Uh, so if you came in a little bit late and you've got a small child and you think, oops, they need to be in class, uh, then we invite you to do that uh, right now. We finished up a series a few weeks ago uh, giving us a lot of reasons why the Bible's true. So to me it was logical to follow that up with this series, and since the Bible is true, we ought to be applying it to our lives. We, we've talked about the need to read the Bible because it's true. We've talked about the need to pray because the Bible tells us to pray. That way we've got a two-sided conversation taking place, God speaking to us, us talking to God. Last week we talked about marriage and what the Bible has to say about marriage, and we looked at it kind of in a broad spectrum type way. We tried to look at it from a, a, a biblical standpoint as far as what is uh traditional marriage, why that should still be the interpretation of marriage. And then we also tried to look at some some tips for uh, married couples that ought to help some uh, as you uh, struggle through this relationship. It can be a struggle uh, a lot of times called, uh, called marriage. Since the Bible is true, we ought to also pay attention to what it says in topics like this. What does it say about sex? I know traditionally you don't hear that a lot at church, and I think that's wrong. I think probably had the church been proclaiming what the Bible really says all along, maybe we wouldn't be in some areas we are within our culture. The the truth of the matter is, as I said when I gave the first disclaimer, your kids are going to be taught about it, whether it be at school, in the schoolyard, from the television, from the movies, online, whatever it might be. And the picture that they're going to have is going to be, for the most part, a worldly type picture. And that's why we as Christians need to understand clearly what the Bible has to say about this this topic. A little bit of a history lesson, at least in my perspective, what took place. Back in the 60s, just kind of started having a a sexual revolution, so to speak, uh, in, in culture. Uh, for years and years, we've heard God is love, and then somewhere through that culture, it started twisting it around to where love is God. And, and when they said love is God, they're not just talking about the, uh, the, the emotion of love. They're talking about the full intimate relationship and, and how that uh, is almost like a, a God in their lives. Uh, over the years, we saw it start changing from being just a, a, a promiscuous, uh, acceptance of premarital sex and heterosexual sex, uh, in, in the wrong light, in the wrong, uh, realm, uh, to where it started also, uh, pushing and has been for several years in the area of, of, of homosexuality. As though that's supposed to be something that, that, that is just like another alternative lifestyle and something that, that we ought to accept. My, my problem is this. And, and I want to tell you up front, I'm not trying to be improper today, not trying to be offensive to anyone. My problem, though, is this. This ought to be the moral compass for our lives, not culture. 
not what someone else says, not what Hollywood says, not what someone's emotions tell them. This needs to be the moral compass for, for our lives. To where we base our decisions in all areas, including this area of sex, based upon what the Bible has to say. So since the Bible is true, and since there's so much misinformation and miscommunication and outright lies that's being perpetuated by our culture in this topic of sex, we need to take some time and see what the Bible really has to say. So to start with, I'm going to kind of give us some foundational truths or principles uh, about what the Bible says concerning sex. And then we're going to get pretty specific on the other side of uh, of that and, and look at some specific applications about what the Bible says concerning this same topic. In this first point, we're going to study kind of one passage of Scripture as we look at some foundational biblical truths concerning the, the topic of, of sex. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 through 20, God inspires the Apostle Paul to write these words. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. As we look at some foundational truths in, in those few verses, the first one is simply this. The Bible clearly tells us, God through the pen of Paul, tells us that we ought to flee from sexual immorality. The word flee literally means to run away. Uh, it gives an implication of shunning or by analogy to vanish or escape away from this temptation. It's the opposite of what our culture tells us to do. Our culture tells us to run toward sexual immorality. Our culture tells us to toy with it, to play with it, to, to dream about it, to think about it in, in your mind. And then the more you toy with it, the more danger there is that you're going to follow through and act out something that can be very detrimental in, in your life. We're, we're told to flee from it. Uh, the background of this, and most of you may be aware of this, but when Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, that they lived in a very sexually charged culture. In fact, there were pagan temples there to where there would be male and female prostitutes. And they had some warped sense of going down to the temple and having sexual relations with these, with these pagan priestesses and priests who were more or less just prostitutes there, that somehow that was worshiping their pagan god. So he writes to a culture that is very sexually charged, which to me, that's a description of the culture that we live in today also. And we're told to flee from it, not flee toward it, not continue to, to toy with it and play with it, as I said a moment ago, but we're told to flee from it. The, the phrase for sexual immorality is the same word that we get our word porn or pornography from. And what the word meant in the, in the Greek, it talks about several things. That phrase meant harlotry, adultery, incest, fornication, uh, any form of sexual immorality or impurity. The root word means to act the harlot, to indulge in unlawful uh, lust of either sex, uh, even to practice idolatry. 
And regrettably, they were doing that. It was like sex was an idol to them in that culture that they had there in Corinth. And many people in our world today have turned it into an idol also, to where it's almost like they're God, and they're elevating their desire above what God has to say. And anytime we replace what God's will is with something other than God's will, we're actually making that thing to be an idol to us. And, and that's what was taking place in that, in that culture. So Paul writes and he tells them to flee, to run away from sexual immorality. As I said earlier, that's the opposite of what our culture wants us to do. Our culture, every direction you look, whether it be advertisements on TV or uh, online or whatever it might be, it, the movies and our culture is like trying to draw you in and suck you in to, to this type of a moral relationship and, instead of us fleeing from it. God tells us to run away, to shun it, to escape it instead of entering into that type of immorality. God tells us to flee, to run. To give you a picture of some practical advice, look at what Proverbs says. We'll read this a little bit later also. But Proverbs, of course, is considered one of the wisdom books. Here's a really practical piece of wisdom. Keep your way far from her. Now, if you read the whole context of that, it's talking about the the immoral woman. It's talking about a, a harlot, a prostitute. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Will you stop and think for a minute how practical that is? If you're being tempted, if you don't go near the door, you're not going to fall into an immoral sexual relationship. If you don't even go near the door of her house. That's pretty practical, isn't it? This passage of Scripture warns us not only to flee from sexual immorality, it also tells us this, that we need to avoid damage to our own lives. We need to avoid damage to our own lives. Next slide. Uh, keep reading with me in the, in the text there in Corinthians that we read a moment ago. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So that phrase, every other sin, whatever it might be, any kind of sin you want to categorize there, when, when, when you're sinning uh, against someone else, it's different than this type of, of sexual immorality sin in your life. Because it involves such a strong emotional attachment. It, it involves such a strong connection that you're actually doing damage to your own life. That phrase... But sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The word but simply means, hey, other things, contrarywise to what you're being told or what you feel, to act like a harlot, to indulge in unlawful lust of either sex, to practice idolatry, misses the mark that God has for your life. That's what sin is. It's to miss God's holy ideal. It's to miss the mark that God establishes for us. And he says you're missing the mark pertaining to yourself because you're sinning against your own body, and, and, and it even means the body is a sound whole. God, God is the one that created this concept. God made a man, as we talked about marriage last week, God made a man the way He made a man, and the woman the way He made a woman. In the marriage relationship was a man and a woman being brought together, not people of the same sex thinking it's okay to be married to each other. God made the man and the woman the way He made them. He's given us the desires that we have. It's not a surprise to God that we have those desires. God designed it to be a gift, and we'll talk more about this later, 
between a man and a woman that are married together. You see, along with that physical act, there's this, this emotional connection that's meant for a husband and wife to have. It's not meant for a one-night stand. It's not meant just for something that people refer to as casual sex. And that's why there's so much guilt and damage that can happen in your own life because what you might think is just something frivolous that everybody else is doing will we'll have this emotional, deep binding connection that takes place. And somewhere on the other side of it, you get hit with guilt. Somewhere on the other side of it, there's this damage that actually hits your life because you're practicing this intimacy outside the bonds of marriage and it causes damage. To get a more of a picture of that, I'm going to show you some passages of Scripture back in Proverbs again to show some personal damage that can happen. Proverbs 5.5, 5, talking about that immoral woman once again, it says, Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol or hell, some translations say. It gives us a warning of the damage that can happen when you start going down this path of sexual immorality. In verse 8 through 23, it says, Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. In other words, you can completely ruin your reputation. You can completely blow your testimony. You, you can you can have this this picture of yourself when it's exposed what you've been doing that will follow you around for all your days. And that's how people will start to, to view you. It said, let strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. In other words, caught up in that relationship, there can be things like legal suits that can take place or uh, blackmail that can take place. And you're actually losing physical things that, that you have amassed as a result of it. And it says, and at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructions. I am at the brink of utter ruin. Notice what he says here. In the assembled congregation. In other words, if we don't listen to what God tells us, if we don't listen to the correct things when we're taught the correct things in regards to this thing called sexual immorality, if we just write it off and we don't pay any attention to it, we will come to a point where we realize, man, it's cost me a lot. I wished I'd listened. I, I, I wished I had listened to the instruction that I was given. And just because you're a believer doesn't mean that you're immune to it because here, as Solomon is writing in Proverbs, he says, I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. So you can't imagine because you're a Christian that there's no way you can fall. There's no way you can be tempted and go in that direction. Solomon pretty much almost lost it all because of that type of immorality that he was practicing. It gives us some positive tips also. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. 
Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her, you don't hear this word much at church, do you? Let her breast, but it's in the Bible. Let, let her breast fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Why should be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. Let me stop for a minute before I keep reading on. He's saying there more or less this. You need to be blessed in your own marriage relationship. Drink water from your own sister and from your own spouse. Don't be uh, uh, allowing the, the streams that are actually connected with your DNA and everything else just to go out anywhere, out in, in into the streets. Instead, it needs to be your spouse, your wife, your husband. And foundationally, we need to remember this truth. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. In other words, you might can find a dark enough place where you think no one else knows except that other person that you're with. I've got news for you. God always knows and God always sees. I heard Andy Stanley one time talk about, uh, he was giving a testimony about how his parents raised him. And he was so thankful that his parents had taught him this. Because Charles, his dad, had said, hey, you might can go somewhere and do something that I don't know and your mama doesn't know, but you can never do something that God doesn't know. And if we can just embed that into our thinking and into the thinking of our children as we raise them, because that's true. We, we can go out and try and hide things and do things that no one else knows. And many times we might think we've pulled it off, but the reality is God sees and God knows, and there's not a dark enough alley you can find anywhere that God doesn't know about it. He goes on and he says, and he ponders his past. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. And he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. Sexual immorality can take you further down a path than you intended to go. We need to flee from sexual immorality, but we also need to recognize that practicing sexual immorality causes damage to our own lives. Here's another really important reason if you're a Christian why you ought to avoid sexual immorality. You need to remember who you belong to. You need to remember to whom you belong. We keep reading back in that passage in Corinthians. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God. In your body. Look at some of those phrases in the, in, in the Greek language that, that Paul used, inspired of God as he wrote this. He said, don't you know, don't you see, don't you clearly know this? If you're a Christian, don't you clearly know as a Christian that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit w- within you? Pertaining to yourself, that body, all of you, that body is a sound whole. It is a shrine or a temple that is indwelled by the very breath, the very Spirit of God in a fixed position. Now stop and think about that for a moment. If you're a Christian, you can't decide one evening, hey, Holy Spirit, I appreciate you being in my life, but I'm going to take you out and leave you at home tonight. 
Because I've got other plans and I've got some things that I want to do in my life. So you're staying there and I'm going to go out and be involved in this sexual immorality and do whatever I desire. You see, you, you can't do that because if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit of God indwells you on a permanent basis. You, you can't leave him at home. You can't get away from him, which also means this. If he's living in you, whatever you decide to do in your body, you're subjecting the Holy Spirit of God to the same thing that you've decided to do with your own body. He, he said you're not your own. You don't belong to yourself anymore if you're a Christian. And here's why. For, that means it's a sign and a reason, for you were bought. You're at a marketplace. You're in a marketplace called sin. And God sent His Son in the flesh to go to a cross and shed His blood and pay for you. He bought you with His shed blood. And because you belong to Him, you're not yourself anymore. It's not just for you to decide you're going to be involved in things like sexual immorality. You don't belong to you. You belong to Christ. He bought and He paid for you. And by the way, look at the last part of of that. He purchased or redeemed you a price, a value, money paid. It even meant esteem. You know what causes a lot of people to go into sexual immorality? They don't feel good about themselves. Maybe they never felt loved at home. Maybe they didn't ever have a good relationship with their father or their mother in some way. So they decide they're going to go out and, and, and feel like they've got some self-esteem if somebody else will just want them. If somebody else will just have a relationship with them. The problem with that is this. If you're a Christian, your self-esteem ought to be tied to Jesus and the blood that He shed on the cross for you. That's where your self-esteem is. That's how valuable you are. God died on the cross for you. He sent His Son to take all of your sin and He shed His blood for you. That's where your self-esteem is. It's not by being accepted in some sexual relationship. It's not by trying to earn it in, in some way for yourself, by going out and, and practicing some type of a moral sexual relationship. Instead, we're to glorify God in our body. That's a particle. We read over the little word so in the English, don't even think about it. But here in this particular instance, in the Greek, it's a particle that gives really a strong emphasis and explicitness. He's saying, now then, because you don't belong to yourself, because you were bought with a price, now then, here's what you ought to do. You need to render or esteem glorious as very apparent the supreme divinity of all the universe in a fixed position in your body as a sound whole. That means this. That means your goal as a Christian is not to go out and practice immorality. Your goal is to live in a way that makes it evident to everyone around you that God is glorious and look what He's done in your life. And look how He's changed you. You need to be making the kind of choices not that just meet some type of sensual need in your life. We need to make the kind of choices that portray God to be a glorious God. You need to flee from sexual immorality. You need to recognize it can cause damage to your own life. And if you're a Christian, you need to remember to whom you belong to and that you're the very temple of God and God lives within you. That's some foundational principles about sexual immorality. Now we're going to look at some specific biblical applications. Some specific biblical applications concerning sexual immorality, concerning sex. And what's said in the Bible. I think sometimes we're not specific enough at church. 
We imply a lot of stuff sometimes, but sometimes we're not specific when we need to be. I heard someone joking about that one time, and they say, well, you know, they'd listen to the sermon, they were trying to figure out everything maybe the pastor had said and meant to say that Sunday, and, and they were joking about it, and they said, well, he sure implied a lot today, didn't he? We don't need just to imply things, we need to be clear, crystal clear, about what the Bible has to say. So in the effort to do that, I'm going to be as specific as I can be and try and be proper at the same time. But we're going to talk about homosexuality and we're going to talk about heterosexuality. We're going to talk about those two topics. Before we even go there, I want to remind you again, my goal is not to be offensive. My goal is not to be improper. My goal is just to try and share you the truth with you, the truth of what the Bible has to say. I know we live in a day and time when many of you have been touched by this, whether it be sexual immorality in the heterosexual realm or whether it be homosexuality. I recognize we live in a time when our culture is wanting to more and more and more and more force feed us as Christians that we have to accept homosexuality. I struggle with this a lot of times from this standpoint. I always want to be loving and acceptable, and I think the church needs to be. Because anyone, irregardless of their practice or their background, ought to feel welcomed in the seats of this church to where they can hear the truth. Because they're not going to hear the truth a lot of places. So we need to be loving and accepting, but we also still have to tell people the truth. And the reason I have to be really guarded about it, 10 years in law enforcement can make you pretty callous sometimes. And the more and more I get it force-fed to me, the more and more I start feeling like I'm less loving about it. <laughs> and, 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 and feel like I'm getting more stringent uh, about it. So I don't want to tell you that up front. And I also want to tell you, if, if I come across in the wrong way, I'm not meaning to. If I do, don't you leave from here mad at me. You come see me first. Okay? I'll probably just tell you, hey, I just said what the Bible had to say. <laughs> but sometimes people hear wrong, and sometimes I'm human and I can communicate wrong. You recognize that? But we still have to hold to what the Bible has to say. Amen, as believers. So, what does the Bible say about homosexual sex? What does it say about homosexuality? To begin with, it says it is an abomination. Leviticus 18, verse 22 says, You shall not. That I don't know there's a lot of room in shall not to understand what's being said. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. And in that day and time, in the practice of the law, it says they shall surely be put to death and their blood is upon them. So it sounds like God had a very, very dim view of the act of homosexuality. The word for abomination means something that's disgusting morally. 
It's an abhorrence. It's something that, that God loathes or God looks at as being morally detestable. So from God's viewpoint, and kind of going back to the first mentioned principle of this I talked about last week concerning marriage, with clarity, God speaks when He first addresses this issue in the Scriptures, and God says it's an abomination to Him. It is something that he abhors. It is something that he, that he loathes. It's something that God says is, is morally detestable. And that's the way we as believers need to view what God says about it. It's awfully easy to be impressed by our culture. It's awfully easy to start thinking, well, but they can have a sincere relationship and a loving relationship and be as kind and sweet to each other as a husband and wife can be. I agree, they can be sometimes. That doesn't change what the Bible has to say. That, that doesn't do away with the fact that the, that the Bible says it's an abomination before God. Second thing is that it brought judgment. When we look at what the Bible has to say about homosexuality, it brought judgment. This story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's where the word sodomy came from. There's even laws still upon the books in our land that address sodomy. We're told early on in Genesis 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Jump ahead into... 19, and let me give you a little bit of background of what's taking place here. Lot had decided that he wanted to pick out a, a well-watered plain for himself and his family, and he withdrew from Abraham and Abraham's influence, and he decided to go pitch his tent towards Sodom. The next thing you know, the next picture you see of him, he's living in Sodom. Then you see a picture of him being a judge at the gate in Sodom. So he's living in this culture to where this type of sexual immorality is being practiced in just a, just a mad rate. God decides that He's going to destroy those two cities, and God sends angels uh, who look like two men, and they're coming, but Abraham perceives who they are. And they tell Abraham what they're about to do. And Abraham starts begging and saying, well, you spare the city if there's this many righteous people or that many righteous people or this many righteous people. And he's getting down to where he thought maybe he could save his own family and God wouldn't destroy the city if he could just get it down to his own family. The problem was his own family there and Lot's extended family wasn't righteous. So they went into the city and the men of the city saw these two men, these two angels come into the city and go into Lot's house because Lot saw them come in. Lot perceived who they were and he took them home with him. And that's where we pick up. Now before they lay down, these angels that had come to stay with Lot, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, all the people to the last man. And isn't that a tragic statement? Surrounded the house and they called a lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so we may know them. Now, we'll pick back up reading in verse 6 in a moment. But I want you to get a clear understanding of what they meant by the word no. They, they did not mean... Hey, Lynn Crump, I want to introduce to you who I am. That's not what they meant by no. 
In Genesis, it tells us that Adam knew Eve, knew his wife, and she conceived. That's the word that's used there. To look at some other translations in the Amplified Bible, it says, And they called to Lot and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know. And then in parenthesis, it says, Be intimate with them. The Living Bible puts it like this. And they shouted to Lot, Bring out those men to us so that we can rape them. The New Living Translation and the NIV both translate it the same way. Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. So that's a picture you have in the city of Sodom. They see two strangers come in. They go to the house where those strangers are, all the men in the city from the youngest to the oldest, and they say, bring them out so we can have sex with them. Pick back up in verse 6. Next slide. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. And if you want to see a tragic story of how far sin can take you, Law says, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men. They've come under the shelter of my roof. Now you've got to understand in their culture in that day and time, it was a very important thing when you are allowing someone to be a guest in your home that you protect them. But at the same time, I don't care who the guest is. I'm not going to allow my daughters to be taken out in the street and be raped all night long. You know, if you want a tragic picture of how far sin took Lot, he just looked for a good green place to raise his crops. He pitched his tent near Sodom. He moves into Sodom. And then we see the story. He gets to the point he's even willing to say, take my two daughters that are virgins, do whatever you want to do with them all night long. How in the world can a father go to the low point of saying something like that. I understand their culture was different. And you know, I'm pretty coarse sometimes. You've got a, a pastor that used to be a cop. My mentality would be, I'm going to take all of you out and you're never touching my daughter. But how in the, how in the world can you fall to that point? Let's keep reading. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow talking about Lot came to sojourn and now he's become a judge. Now we'll deal worse with, with you than with them. In other words, we're not just going to do this to these men that's come in to stay under your house that were really angels. We're going to do worse to you now. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Then they struck with blindness, the men who were at the entrance to the house, both small and great, so that they were themselves out groping for the door. Now, there's a lot more of that story we don't have time to deal with. The short of it is, those men take Lot and his family out. His wife looks back when she shouldn't have. She turns into a pillar of salt, looking back and longing for that city that she's leaving that she got used to. But God destroys those cities because of the sexual sin that was taking place.
Now, some of them might say, yeah, but that's in the Old Testament, Pastor. And is that really, really what it meant? And is that really what happened there? The New Testament tells us about it, too. Second Peter, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Think about that. The New Testament is telling us that what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is a picture of the judgment that is still yet to come to the ungodly. Then he goes on and he writes this. He says, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and that he heard. Now, I want you to think and apply something there to ourselves for a moment. Lot, even though he had pitched his tent towards Sodom and moved into the city, what he saw and he heard there, he still knew was wrong. And it vexed his righteous soul, is what the Bible says. Here's the reason I'm bringing that up. If you know Christ is your Savior, the things that we are seeing accepted in our culture today ought to vex our righteous souls. It shouldn't be something that we just start to accept. It shouldn't be something that we just start to wink at and we say, well, it's, it's okay. Lot lived in a culture that was vexing his righteous soul because he was in this city that was practicing this. He could have escaped it and does escape it. Our problem today is we live in a world, we live in a culture that every direction you look, you have a suggestion of sexual immorality and homosexuality. And what I'm telling you is this, as Christians, instead of us becoming accepting of it, it needs to vex our righteous souls. And then he goes on. And he says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. God will judge, if you want to boil all that passage down, God's going to judge sexual immorality. God will judge homosexuality. But at the same time, thank God there's forgiveness. Amen. Jude also addresses the same thing. If you want to say the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's just an old story back in the Old Testament. Jude says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by ongoing punishment of eternal fire. Jude says the same thing. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is a picture of the judgment that is still yet to come. The Bible clearly says, <laughs> no bones about it, no argument that the Bible does not say this. The Bible clearly says homosexuality is a sin, that homosexuality is an abomination. Instead of accepting it, it, it ought to vex us. We ought to be concerned about it. That doesn't mean, as I said earlier, we don't have, it doesn't mean we have to be hateful. It doesn't mean we have to be improper. But if, if you're a Christian, this is your standard of truth, not what you hear out in culture. We, we have to still try to be loving. It, it, it gets hard sometimes. It gets hard sometimes when people I have ministered to starts making these types of choices. 
It's hard sometimes when I see pictures on Facebook of people making these types of choices. And I have to really guard against wanting to come across the wrong way. But this is still the standard of truth. Amen? What does the Bible say about heterosexual sex? What does the Bible say about sex between a man and a woman? It's easy for us a lot of times as Christians to get really, really strong against homosexuality. Because if we're going to be fair with everything the Bible has to say, we also have to be really, really strong in what the Bible says about heterosexual sex. We have to be strong in what the Bible has to say about premarital sex. About sex outside the bonds of, of marriage. What, what does the Bible say about heterosexual sex? See, there's, there's this pattern that God gave us that we talked about last week in Scripture. This pattern of it being a man and a woman. Some people will come up with excuses for homosexual activity that we were just talking about. They'll come up with excuses and they'll say, well, but you can see it in nature. Between animals. You know what? You can see cannibalism in nature too. Does that make it right? We, we don't get our moral fiber from nature. We get our moral fiber as Christians from the Word of God. We, we have to come back to what the Bible says. It doesn't matter what you see in nature. That doesn't make it right. Here's the thing about nature. We live in a fallen world. In that world is impacted by the fall of sin. But when we start thinking about heterosexual sex, we need to recognize the Bible clearly says it's reserved for marriage. It's reserved for marriage. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all in the marriage bed undefiled. Now the implication there is this. The marriage bed is undefiled. Anything beyond that is defiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. It's real easy, as I said a moment ago, for us to get upset with homosexuality and the way that's accepted in our culture. We ought to be just as upset about the unbiblical practice of couples practicing sex outside the bonds of marriage. Remember that emotional connection I mentioned earlier? And it's supposed to be for a, for a husband and, and a wife. The, the Bible clearly says, you shall not commit adultery. Once again, that little phrase, shall not, to me doesn't leave a lot of room for interpretation. The Bible also says this, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Wounds and dishonor will he get. And his disgrace will not be wiped away. 
For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. More or less, that's just saying, hey, it's wrong. If you get caught in it, guess what? Her husband might kill you. No matter what you say, no matter how you try and compensate for him. The Bible clearly, clearly, clearly says it's wrong. Now, me having said that, I recognize that a lot of people have messed that up. But that doesn't change the fact of what the Bible says. For us as Christians, even though we've messed it up, we still have to say, this is what the Bible says. And we have to repent for how we've fallen short and ask God for forgiveness. I've counseled with couples who messed it up before getting married. And they wrestle with guilt even though they married each other for a while. I've counseled with people who messed it up in a night of thinking they're just going to have some fun, do what the rest of the world is doing, and then strain and carry with the guilt of that for years and years and years. The Bible says the sexual relationship is reserved for marriage. At the same time, the Bible says this, the Bible lets us know that this sexual relationship between a man and a woman is to be practiced consistently. It's to be practiced consistently in marriage. Don't hear this a lot of times at church. I pretty much grew up in church except for a few years. And I cannot remember ever, ever having heard this text preached until after I was called to ministry and I came across it. And then I said, I need to preach it. And most of you that have been here very long, you've heard me preach it before. Because it's part of the Bible. The church somehow has almost made it sound like there's something dirty with sex. There's something wrong with sex. Well, premarital sex is wrong. But I think God designed the sexual relationship as a very special gift for a man and a woman that are married to each other to enjoy. Look to what's said in this passage of Scripture. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Talking about outside of marriage. Remember Corinthians, the culture that was there that we talked about? But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Now, I, I think you ought to get what this is saying without me giving a whole lot of exposition to it. But the husband should give to his wife her congenial rights. Some translations don't make it that clear. You understand what congenial rights is? It's not talking about doing the dishes. There's nothing wrong with helping work around the house and do the dishes. But ladies, that's not what it's talking about. Men, that's not what it's talking about. That the husband should give to his wife her congenial rights. Likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. In other words, the moment you become husband and wife, your body belongs to your spouse. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And then it goes on and says, don't deprive one another. Now, I'll keep reading that in just a second. 
But the God that made us, the God that is not surprised by the desires we had because He wired us to have those desires. The God that made our bodies the way He made our bodies. God says that you need to meet the need of your spouse. And your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to your spouse once you're married. So that means there might be times when you're completely planning on something else that you had in mind. And that was not remotely on your mind at all. But if you discover your spouse has that need, guess who's supposed to meet the need? You are. It is so important. The Bible says don't deprive one another. Don't keep each other apart sexually, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. In other words, you've talked about it. There's no head games taking place. There's none of this stuff. You made me mad earlier in the week. Instead, you've talked about it and you agree to kind of call time out in your sexual relationship as a husband and wife for a spiritual reason that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Maybe you're trying to decide, is it time to buy a house? Is it time to change jobs? Is it time to have a child? Is it time to retire? Is it da-da-da-da-da? Whatever it is. But you're concerned about what God's heart is in a matter. And you talk about it. And you say, you know what? We kind of need to take a fast from our intimate relationship. And we need to seek God and find out God's heart in the matter. But even after you do that, look what's said. But then come together again. And when you read the tense of it in the Greek, it says come together again quickly so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That's as practical as anything you'll read in the Bible for a husband and wife when it's talking about intimacy. It is so important in the marriage relationship that God says don't defraud each other. He says be sure you're meeting the need of each other. Do not Call time out unless you've done it by discussion and for a spiritual reason. But even though it's for a spiritual reason, you better come back together again because since you have that natural desire, Satan will tempt you to go outside the bonds of marriage to fulfill that natural desire that I'll be taking care of in the marriage relationship. Men, we are taking an offering up later. I thought I'd just let you know that. I joked about that the other night with somebody that I know, and a young lady spoke up and said, why just the men? (laughs) You see, it is an important relationship. Part of the relationship. God gave you the desires that He gave you. God made you the way He made you. The problem is, over the years, the church has made it sound like, well, if you have to, to have kids. We made it sound like it's just about procreation. And this clearly is not talking about just having kids. This clearly is talking about being part of the bond in the special relationship of marriage. God knew you had those desires. God created the concept of sex. And God tells us how it ought to be carried out correctly and how it is carried out wrongly. He tells a husband and wife, you're to meet each other's needs. It's not just about procreation. If it were just about procreation, God could have made us like flowers and we could pollinate. God didn't make it like that. God made it to where it's a special gift 
union between a husband and his wife. If it's just about procreation, and that's all it is, and I'm not trying to be improper, I'm just trying to tell you the truth. Why did God make our bodies like He made our bodies? Why did God put nerve endings in places He put nerve endings? I'll tell you why. God wanted it to be an enjoyable experience, a deep bonding experience between a husband and a wife that they need to practice consistently because God wired you to where you need to have that met in the bonds of marriage. Does that make sense? If I've offended you, I'm sorry. Come talk to me about it later. I'm just trying to tell you the truth of what the Bible has to say. What does the Bible say? About six. The Bible says it's a gift from God that ought to be practiced correctly in the bonds of marriage. The, the Bible says that you need to flee from sexual immorality, that you need to abstain from it because it will damage your life. I want to close with one other passage of Scripture because there's something important we need to see in this passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9-11 through Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, no revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. As I read that, I recognized I jumped over something that I'm going to give you just to put in your notes and then I'll come right back to this. The homosexuality is also wrong because it's it's against what God says. It doesn't go along with God's truth. It, it's it's against. It's opposed to God's truth. The Bible clearly says that. I I also jump past something else, and uh, I'm showing my my humanity today that I can forget something, <laughs> and also that I'm very tired because of the weekend that I've that I've had so far. Paul says in Romans that it's unnatural. He clearly says it's unnatural in Romans. You can take time and read the passage. I'm not going to back up and read it. I apologize. I jumped over it. But as I was reading that passage of Scripture a moment ago in 1 Corinthians, the Holy Spirit kind of said, you, you left something out. Paul plainly says it's unnatural, that, that it shouldn't take place. And, and Timothy says it's contrary to sound doctrine. So it's something that's wrong because it's contrary to sound doctrine. Now, let's go back to, to Corinthians where I was getting ready to wrap up. I'm sorry about that, guys, but you've got a human preacher. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers and swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. I want to give you 
uh, I think maybe about four things real quick for you to think about based on that passage of Scripture before we close. First one is this. Sexual sin, sexual immorality is clearly something that's opposed to the kingdom of God and opposed by the kingdom of God. You, you saw that a moment ago. You said you, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. Sexual immorality is listed among other sins like idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, larceny, greediness, drunkenness, dishonesty. If I had thought to read through all that passage in Timothy, you saw the name murderers there listed along with sexual immorality and, and homosexuality. So it's a serious sin. But as the church, as Christians and as a church, we have to guard against turning sexual immorality or homosexuality into the unpardonable sin. And here's why I say that. All that list that I read a moment ago, there are things there that most of us are guilty of. You ever told a lie? You ever committed adultery? No, I've never done that. Well, Jesus said if you look upon a woman in lust after you committed adultery already in your heart, so maybe back up for a minute. <laughs> maybe you are guilty of that in some way. If you ever had a coarse attitude where you're just causing trouble, you're like a reviler they talked about earlier, you're just causing trouble with people and being mean-spirited and things like that, probably all of us have from time to time. Have you ever been an idolater? Have you ever taken anything and lifted it in your life to where it's more important to you than Jesus? If you have, you've turned that thing into an idol, even though it be just for a few minutes, a few hours, or whatever. So what I'm simply wanting to point out before we write off homosexuality as an unpardonable sin, we need to recognize it's in a list of sins that we're guilty of. And it said, such were some of you. So we can't write them off. We need to try and reach them for Jesus. But thank God there's forgiveness because it said, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. I'm not asking for raised hands, just aware consciousness. Have you ever messed some of this stuff up we've talked about today? Have, have, you, have you ever maybe found yourself, because of our culture today, starting to accept things that God says is clearly wrong? My mom, and I think I've alluded to this before, but my mom uh, thought me running around with a cousin, a first cousin, her sister's son that was two years older than me was a safe environment. Problem was, it wasn't. I was probably pretty near to being drunk the first time when I was about 13 years old. And it happened more than one time. I was exposed to pornography through him when I was about 12. And if you start getting exposed to things like that at that age, it messes with your mind for a while. So probably all of us, in some ways, 
have messed this up. Thank God (laughs) we can be washed, we can be sanctified, we can be justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us of all the ways we have messed up Your Your perfect will, Your intent, especially in this uh, in this realm of sexuality. Father, I pray if there are those here that are wrestling with guilt this morning, that you'll you'll help them to find peace by taking it to the foot of the cross. But by, by right now, being honest and transparent and, and confessing sin if they have not to you. Father, if it's in the past, if it's old, and they've already confessed it, and and it's under the blood of Jesus, and they've trusted Him as Savior, Father, we thank You for the freedom that we have in Christ. We thank You that we can break Satan's finger off as he points an accusing finger at us because of the cross, because of the blood of Jesus. And no matter what we've done in our past, we thank You that, that we can be forgiven and redeemed and restored. Father, those of us that have experienced that, help us to celebrate what You have done in our lives. But Father, once again, if there are those here who are struggling, those here who are feeling guilt right now, Father, help them to understand that's not a negative thing, that's a good thing that You're doing. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church. Experience a new day in your life.